We say we now know that Cantor was simply wrong about infinity because he thought Bacon wrote Shakespeare's work. No, we don't think that. We think, look at what Cantor had to say about infinity. Yeah, Kara. So are you saying um, that we need, to, I'm not talking about you know, Shakespeare, but, um, that uh, we should write a moral argument? It doesn't, it's. A argument <coughs> a point overall. Look, I want, you should make Pascal's argument, this is generally the case for all interpretation in philosophy and in the humanities. So I'll give, I'll give you the, the, my general view, which is that you should always read something good or something interesting or something worth reading to be the best version that it could be of what it is. Uh, no, no, it's not, because you're arguing for it. So it's not, there, this, is, this is not a fast argument, but, it, but there is a fast way of at least starting to think about it. That if you're arguing with someone, you know, this is basically, um, you've all been in this position. If you, if you ever become a lawyer, you will be trained to prevent your clients from doing this. Um, but it's basically the case that in real disputes, people will tend to say, um, now I really wasn't there, but I know that I can't prove that. Um, and um, so I can see why you might think I was there. What a lawyer will tell you is you stop at I really wasn't there. You don't start conceding things that are hard for your position. Um, that's what we tend to do in argument though. That is to say, if you're arguing with someone, you have to see why they might disagree with you. And you have to see that they might disagree with you because they're stupid, and then you won't be troubled by their disagreement. Or you might see that they have very subtle disagreements with you. And if they have very subtle disagreements with you, then you have to take those subtle agreement, disagreements into account. And it's cheating to try to twist their disagreements into something that they're not saying. Um, what you want to do in a genuine intellectual conversation with someone is get what they are saying. And even if they're making mistakes in what they're saying, if there's an insight behind it, you want to help them clear up their mistakes to get to the insight, even if you disagree with the insight. So it's sort of anti-intellectual. And this is what you shouldn't be doing. It's anti-intellectual. Being anti, what I'm about to tell you is what you shouldn't be doing. Sorry, it's too long a sentence. Are we trying to clear, is that the, the paper we should be trying to clear up Pascal? Or to, like I don't, I, no. Wait, I. We should be arguing with the Pascal, but they messed everything up, and he said everything. The platonic Pascal. Yes. Yes, a platonic Pascal. So what's. What's, Does that mean we have to state this wager in a way that... That's powerful. Yeah. Look, here's, here's the situation. Okay, look, you've all been in this situation. You say to someone, I can't believe it. I have to write a paper for Wednesday um, on this weirdo 17th century Pascal. And then you're talking to someone and you're complaining, and then they start out complaining you about your own situation. Pascal, that moron, even Pascal's triangle is stupid. Why would anyone make you want to write a paper on Pascal? That's just ridiculous. Um, all of Pascal's triangle is, is implicit in the quadratic equation. Who gives a darn about Pascal's triangle? So then you might find yourself suddenly defending something that you were attacking, I would hope. But you've all been in the position of defending something that you started attacking when someone started over-attacking it, right? You do that with your parents all the time, don't you? I can't believe my parents, they, they're insisting that I be home by 1 a.m. Yeah, those jerks, they should just let you stay out for the entire week and live in the bush. Well, no, actually, they shouldn't. Um, you know, I kind of appreciate the fact that they care about me. So it's when you've all had that situation of changing positions where you're attacking something to defending it against someone who's attacking it more vehemently than you. Is this a familiar experience? 
Never? Really? Never? I can think of a specific instance. We have that in California. You have that in California. Okay, good. So, I mean, look, birtherism is an example of this. So, you know, how can you vote for Obama? He was, he was born in Kenya. So people like Romney and Ryan say, no, he wasn't. The reason not to vote for Obama isn't that he was born in Kenya. The reason not to vote for him was because his economic policies have been terrible failures. Um, that's not my position necessarily. I try to be very, very <laughs> unclear as to what I think. Um, but that is, you know, that overdoing an attack will prompt an honest person to not accept the overdone attack, but to say, no, that part isn't true. So you can easily overdo an attack on Pascal. You can say, you know, it's ridiculous to um, even think that he can give a decent argument for 17th century Jansenism. Um, it's all very silly. It's easy to show that he's wrong, and there I've shown that it's wrong. Um, and that's not, that's anti-intellectual. What you want to do is find out the smartest thing and the most powerful and the most well-grounded thing that Pascal is saying that you disagree with. So you want to, it's like, well, again, to bring in Obama and Romney, it's like debate preparation. You know, what Romney and what, what Romney did do before the first debate, and apparently Obama didn't, was to prepare by arguing with someone, giving on their side, but giving them the most powerful versions of the other side's argument. So when Romney and Rob Portman were having their practice debates, I'm sure Port they spent a lot of time with Portman explaining that nothing that he, quote, Obama, unquote, was doing was actually socialist. And what would be a mistake is for Portman, for, for Romney to say to Portman, you know, your policies for the last four years have been socialist, and for Portman to say, oh, you got me. I think I'll resign the presidency and give it to you right now. Um, the only point of a debate is if the, your, your sparring partner is sparring hard, not giving you easy targets, but forcing you to go for the hard targets. So imagine, don't go for the easy, don't go for the low-hanging fruit in Pascal. There's, there's plenty of it, but it's of no interest. Go for what Pascal would be saying. If he were pushing his insight in a way that would actually strike you as powerful, which may or may not be the way he pushes it, but it's enough like the way he pushes it. So what Pascal would say if he were reincarnated now, if he had the same moral in commitments? Sorry? In a Jew. In a Jew. No, but what he, would, what he would say if he had the same moral and religious commitments and the same way of thinking and the same idea about the possibilities of conversion. Yeah. The point is, by taking the strongest elements, that we disagree with, but the strongest elements of Pascal, our argument will have the most intellectual strength. Right, and your argument against him will have the most intellectual strength assuming you are arguing against him, which most people do, but um, it you know, it's not, it's not, doesn't go without saying that you will. But um, if you're moved to argue against him, don't try and defeat him on trivial grounds. Defeating him trivially, that's easy, just as defeating Aristotle trivially is easy. Um, defeating him on harder grounds is hard. Yeah? Yeah, which, I mean, the litmus test is always, Yeah. Is it is it in principle possible for there for you to for Pascal to have made his argument against me stronger? Like if you say, well, Pascal said I'm just sort of stating what the professor said in a different way. Pascal said, well, you know, God was just there, but God must exist because there was this miracle one time, and um, that that shows that it exists. You say, well. Or if he says that, you know, there was a being that understood this miracle or whatever. And you say, well, there is no being like that. So therefore, 
there's no God. And what you want to say is, in principle, if there were a being that he, that he supposedly put forth, or uh, if there was someone who could under, who could uh, get the knowledge, would that still be as bad of an argument as you originally thought? Like you want to make sure that you're really like getting to the foundation of what he exactly says, and not just knocking off the top in a superficial way, because then those arguments, it's just exactly what the professor just said. Those, those, those arguments are not reaching him, they're not respecting the fact that he is doing some serious work, and you really want to like take it, and exactly what was just said. Your argument is not a good argument, and it won't be very strong, or it won't be the best possible argument if you don't take him at his best possible argument. So you really just want to look and make sure that you're making a principled attack. Like, don't look at, at the features of it so much, is what I sometimes tell students. Like, don't look at the specifics, but say, like, alright, let me reword this, and say, what exactly is he trying to say without the frills of, you can even, you know, not talk about God, you know, when you think about it, in principle, you don't even have to talk about God, you can talk about anything. And you would say, what is the, what is the basic, you know, skeleton of his argument? And then you can respond to it in that way, and then add some Back in. And I think that will help you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to get back to, the, to a standard pro meat eating argument, um, you know, a standard pro meat eating argument is we've evolved to eat meat. Um, you can see that from, um, from our teeth. And therefore, um, arguments for vegetarianism are wrong because we've evolved to eat meat. Um, no, we have evolved to eat meat, but that's not the. the but um, people who are arguing for vegetarianism aren't saying, really, it's my belief that humans have evolved to be vegetarians. That's not the argument. What? I know they. I know they do, and there are arguments for that. We're actually evolved to be omnivores, but the argument isn't. Um, that that you should be a vegetarian because we're evolved to be a vegetarian, and therefore it's not you're not proving that argument wrong by showing no we're evolved to to eat meat. Um, that's that doesn't show the argument is wrong, even though it might seem like it does. Um, or to take another example, this I actually came upon in a fairly well respected book. Um, so John Locke, you probably know no, not the guy from Lost, the philosopher John Locke. <laughs> Um, had has an argument that the mind is what he calls a tabula rasa, or a a blank slate. Um, that is that everything that we know um, we know from experience. Um, we don't have innate ideas. It's an anti-Platonic argument. It's wrong, by the way, but it's an anti-Platonic <laughs> argument um, that we don't have innate ideas. That we learn everything from experience. So this one guy. Um, writes a book, which I just could not believe a few years ago, in which he says, Locke is clearly wrong because I actually spent an afternoon once um, talking to a blank slate and showing it pictures and reading it from books, and it was no different at the end from the beginning. Um, therefore, Locke is wrong. Um, and, you know, that's not taking Locke seriously. Um, it's treating what Locke is, is using as a metaphor, and a helpful and useful metaphor, um, as though Locke really thought that we all have just little blank slates in our head, and that somehow we go around and those blank slates turn into minds. Um, so that's a really bad argument against Locke. Locke is wrong, but with friends like the person arguing against him, um, I don't want, that's not the argument to make against him. Um, well, <laughs> because we do have innate ideas, because there are things that we can, there are competences that we have, for example, competence for language, um, because, of, because of our genetic heritage. Um, yeah, uh, what Darwin actually very famously said was, he scribbled this in the monkey house in the London Zoo. Um, when he was thinking through evolution, and you can actually find, find this. It's actually online. They put all of Darwin's manuscripts online. But he scribbled. He was really worried because he suddenly had this, this amazing idea, and he said, Plato was right. Um, so what Plato thought was that, um, and Locke was arguing very much against Plato, what Plato thought was that we were born um, from a platonic realm. 
that our souls lived in a realm of knowledge until we were born. And then when we were born, we forgot it all. Um, we had an experience of almost total amnesia. So that our souls still contained this knowledge within them, but it was covered over by a veil of amnesia. And that nevertheless, through thinking hard and through philosophy, we could remember some of the things that we'd forgotten. Um, and uh, Plato's demonstration of this is in fact mathematics. That is that you can ask someone, as Socrates does in a dialogue that Plato writes, you can ask someone um, a, a somewhat difficult mathematical problem and they'll get an intuitive but wrong answer. Um, in particular, the question was, if you have a square of side one um, and um, you want to double the area of that square, how big a square do you want to make? And the intuitive answer that the young boy he asks um, gives to this question is, well, just double the length of the side, and instead of having a square of side one, you'd have a square of side two, and that would double the area. And that's an intuition that you could have if you had never thought about math. And, but if you double the area, so now you have a square of size, if you double the, the so length of the side, so you now have a square of size two, what's become of the area? It's quadrupled. So this intuitive, obvious answer turns out to be wrong. Now Socrates doesn't say to him, no, you're wrong. He says, think about it. And so the boy thinks about it. And he says, oh, wait, that doesn't work. Um, and Socrates says, so how would you do it? And the boy says, well, I don't know. And Socrates says, well, think about other ways that you might try to double the, um, the area of the original square. And the boy thinks about them, and then he comes up with them. Now, he's really being, being coached through this by Socrates. But Socrates points out that he never tells the boy the answer. He only asks him questions. And those questions, in fact, are extremely leading questions. No one finds this demonstration convincing. But the idea is that he asks him a bunch of questions, and the boy, in trying to answer those questions, has to go deep into knowledge that he's forgotten, that he knew in the realm of the forms before his soul was born, but that he forgot at birth. And he is able to recover some of what he's forgotten. So that Plato has a very interesting idea of education there, a very important idea of education, which is that education is bringing out latent potential in people. The latent potential that Socrates shows everyone has is a potential for understanding Euclidean geometry. Everyone is born, or almost everyone is born, virtually everyone is born, with a capacity to understand geometry. A blank slate isn't. You could draw geometry on a blank slate, but the blank slate wouldn't understand it. But humans are born with a capacity to understand geometry. We're born with a capacity for language. We're born with a capacity for counting. We're born with a capacity for logic. We're born with all sorts of different capacities. But we don't have access to those capacities unless they're drawn out from us through education. So that's Plato's idea of education. And it's basically a true idea. It's not the only true idea, but it's a true idea of education, that latent capacities are, are, are drawn out by the environment. And so Plato thought this proved that there's another world, the world of the forms, the world of truth, where all true things were available. Um, if you know the allegory of the cave, this is the world outside of the cave. If you don't know the allegory of the cave, it's still the world outside of the cave, but you just don't know what I mean. Um, the allegory of the cave is that in this world that we live in, we're actually, it's like living in a cavern without knowing it and seeing shadows projected on a wall and thinking that that's reality. But um, in this cavern, um, 
we don't even realize there's a fire behind us which is projecting those shadows on the wall. Far less do we realize that outside of the cavern, there, the sun is shining, um, and shining so brightly that it would blind us if our eyes didn't get used to it. But that outside of the cave, that outside of the matrix, that's reality. And where we live is in the matrix or in the cave. Um, so that's Plato's view. As you'll see, it has some, Kant has um, a somewhat similar view. Um, that's Plato's view. Locke's view is radically different from that. Locke says there's only this world. That's all there is. And everything we know we learned by experience, not by bringing out latent potentials within us, latent knowledge, but by experience. Yeah. No. No, he doesn't. Um, he believes there's something we call personal identity, but that we're kind of inventing it. So. Is he like an atheist? No. No, I'm pretty sure he was a, that he was an atheist, wasn't he, Locke? I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah. Um, the English. Sorry? Don't call me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Okay. The English empiricists did tend to be atheistical, and Locke um, was the was even more than Hobbes the most radical of the empiricists, and Hobbes was certainly an atheist. Um, and Hume, who was who was um, the other great um, empiricist, was also definitely an atheist. So Darwin in the Monkey House wrote, "Plato was right." He scribbled on a sheet of paper, "Plato was right." But for pre-existence, read monkeys. And what he meant by that was human capacities, latent human capacities, were first given to us by, by being something evolved in our primate ancestors. So ways that we have of interacting with the world are primate ways of interacting with the world. Our capacities are versions of a primate capacity to interact with the world. And so what Darwin thought was the human mind, a whole lot of the human mind, of human knowledge, of the types of knowledge that humans have, that a whole lot of that was stuff that evolved um, millions of years ago when primates, when our primate ancestors were evolving. So um, it's not that Darwin was saying, Plato, what a noob. We actually evolved from just one or two original forms of life, and Plato didn't know that. What Darwin was saying was, of course I don't believe in a platonic realm of ideas, but I think what's essential about what Plato said is that we are born with innate, that is inborn, ideas, and that those inborn ideas, that, there's a, that we can, we can um, use that fact and use the structure and the kinds of innate ideas that we have to figure out what our past was like before we were born, what our pre-existence was like. Because what he said Plato was right about was pre-existence. But what our pre-existence was like was not pre-existence as a mind, but pre-existence as a capacity to interact with the world in certain ways which were selected for through natural selection. So Darwin very much thought that Plato was essentially right. Plato would have disagreed completely. But Darwin saw something very important in Plato's insight. And if you want to say Plato was wrong, so, so in other words, if you're an evolutionist, if you're an evolutionary biologist, you might, with, who, who was writing for the general public, you might take one of two tacks in writing. You could say, evolution has shown that philosophy is complete BS and Plato especially. Or 
you might say, well, you know what? Darwin didn't think so. Darwin thought that Plato saw something really deep and really essential about how we know about the world, how we're born with innate knowledge. And, you know, the, the um, mechanism of it, okay, that's just gravy. Yeah, the idea that there's some other world where we were all hanging out before we were born. But that part's not important. What's important was that we are born with innate ideas. And those ideas nevertheless require the environment to make them manifest, to turn genotype into phenotype, for example. Um, that's something that Plato already saw. We've been doing that in this class. We're saying, you know, Zeno's paradoxes, yeah, Zeno had a very naive view of space. Zeno didn't understand all sorts of things that we now know. But nevertheless, and for Zeno to say there's no such thing as motion, um, that everything is in a state of, of absolute, undynamic equilibrium and will always, always was and always be that way, all of that's wrong. But Zeno seeing their problems with thinking about motion and seeing how deep those problems were, that's the part of Zeno that matters. So again, you don't want to walk across the room to refute Pascal. You don't want to say, you know, I'm not afraid of hell, so ha ha ha. Um, what you do want to do is take what's powerful about Pascal and argue about those issues and not about um, anything in Pascal that's not powerful. Okay, so speaking of Pascal, um, are, are you, what are you guys thinking of the wager? Are you liking this? I, we shouldn't talk about it until you write your papers, but are you finding the issues interesting? Okay, and Pascal in general? Um, no, Luca? I don't know. I, it's okay. But? Talk about my no, I know, but what about there's other stuff? Yeah. Yeah, Joy. <laughs> oh, I like Pascal's musings about, about, yeah, yeah, about like how Wait. World it, the world is to like be, how it is to exist yeah. better than, than his wager. Okay. Um, I mean, I think the wager is interesting, but I, but. When I'm trying to refute it, I have to be more, like, I, I can't, like, it's not about the, mu it's not about the muses, it's, like, about, like, logic. So. <laughs> yeah, um, although he's <coughs> a little bit doing something like what you'll also see Joyce doing, which is trying to make you feel the stakes of the wager. That is part of the point of the wager is to make you feel the stakes of the wager. And making you feel the stakes of the wager really make he's he's got to spend and spends very powerful time um, showing what it means for the universe or for us to be confronted with infinity, for us to be confronted with infinity on both sides, um, infinity the, the infinitely large and the infinitely small, for us to feel adrift in an infinite universe, for us to. Um, have to cope with all of those things existentially. Um, so that's one way of making the wager, if you, see the, if you see that as relevant to the wager, it's one way of making the wager seem like it matters, not like, oh yeah, I'm just going to talk about this in purely logical terms. Um, he's really, he, he wants you to see the urgency of the wager. Um, one crucial thing that he says, for example, this is another EG or um, exemplum gradium. Um, one crucial thing that he says is that you have no choice but to wager. You have no choice. By being alive, you're wagering. So don't think that you can just say, eh, I'm not going to take the bet either way. Um, and you may feel at first, well, what do you mean I have no choice but to wager? I'm not going to wager. I'm not going to get involved in this, in this ridiculous game. But part of what you could say about the rest of the book is the rest of the book is showing in its description of the human experience 
of the way we find ourselves in this alien universe that we have no choice, that it's not up to us, that we're not in control over whether we wager or not. Um, so the urgency of the wager is partly established, partly based on the urgency of the very powerful things that he says. In this, he's a lot like Augustine. Um, you know, just in order to do justice to Augustine, among the questions that Augustine really powerfully asks, um, and that it's his merit to ask, he asks, why do we mourn the dead? That, for him, becomes a really puzzling but an urgent question. Someone dies, why does it matter so much to us? And it's not an answer to say, oh, because it matters, because we cared about them. Um, there's still a question, but why is that? What does that say about us? But he also asked the question about why did he steal the pears? That is, he didn't want the pears. They meant nothing to him. He just threw them out. They were garbage. And all he was doing was making trouble for himself. So he's asking, well, why did I do that? And so he takes something that looks unimportant and starts asking really probing questions about the nature of his own mind or his own soul, his own psyche. And to the extent that those questions seem familiar to you, to the extent that those questions seem like you can bring up parallel situations in your own life, in your own willfulness or activity, um, you are being asked by Pascal and by Augustine to notice things about the human condition. You know, it's a, that's a throwaway phrase, the human condition. But they're asking you not to make it a throwaway phrase, but to think hard about the condition that you find yourself in, in this world. And the nature of that condition to see the urgency of their own thinking, their way around and through that condition. Jared. How would you feel about bringing in existentialism into the paper yeah. just as a, as a form of comparison? Or sure. Yeah. 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 If you, I mean, if you know existentialism, don't do reading on it. But if you want to see existentialism as an anti-Pascalian or a pro-Pascalian move, mm -hmm. um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, did you want to say something, Angela? No, for the wager. Okay. Because from an existentialist view, what is the wager? Yeah. Okay. Don't don't start spilling your argument to others. Yeah. Um, is it plagiarism to use views on that other philosophers have come up with if we say their name? Don't, yeah, but don't do research. No, it's not plagiarism if you say their name. But don't be, don't be looking for arguments against Pascal. But if there are other philosophers that you know, um, the way Jared knows existentialism, you know, if you know Nietzsche or whatever, that's fine. Um, I was going to say Voltaire. Yeah, that's fine. If you know him. But don't read what Voltaire has to say about Pascal. If you know his... Um, <coughs> the kind of argument he might make against Pascal, just say so. Voltaire might say this, and then you might have to adjudicate between them, see if Voltaire is being fair. Okay. So yeah, that's fine. Yeah? Um, I get the basic idea, but what is it that uh, Pascal is actually arguing with his wager? Because I think he sort of lost me at some point. Um, <laughs> that means you lost the wager. He's arguing, what he thinks he's arguing is that you should be a Jansenist. What I think he's arguing is that you should believe in a fairly um, strenuous and um, not altogether merciful Christian God. But you could turn that into a fairly strenuous um, and um, demanding God. It doesn't have to be a Christian God. So he's basically arguing that you should believe in a god that will punish you if you don't believe in him? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm Yeah. And punish you a lot. 
It's interesting that he doesn't ever mention the punishment in, uh, in, the, in the, the passage about the one year. You mean what the punishment is? Well, he assumes you, he assumes you know all, all about prior and brimstone. Well, I mean, it's, it seems like he's, his argument is almost entirely focused on, um, on, on how you would be, you would be, would be foolish not to accept the possibility of infinite reward mm -hmm. rather than... But he weighs the infinite stick also. But that's yeah. Um, what happens when an infinite carrot meets an infinite stick? Well, they're parallel, really. Um, they are in Pascal. They are everywhere equidistant. The infinite carrot, carrot, and the infinite stick. Um, correspondence between carrots and sticks. You want yeah. <laughs> All right. So. Um, so take a look, for example, at 68, which is um, one of the yeah. sections. What were you going to say? Yeah, I'm just like, this is such stone logic, or stone thinking. Go on. Because I, I thought this, I got this, it's going to happen, and then I threw it across the room. Like, I could not handle it. In a good way or a bad way? I can't even say. I was just like, no, I don't want to think about this. But uh, it's, it's so true, though. Yeah. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Well, I think it's partly what you can do with it is Macbeth. Um, aphorism 68 or section six, 68. So, when I consider the brief span of my life absorbed into the eternity which comes before and after, then a quotation from the biblical apocrypha, as the remembrance of a guest that tarrieth but a day, the small space I occupy and which I see swallowed up in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I know nothing and which know nothing of me, I take fright and am amazed to see myself here rather than there. There is no reason for me to be here rather than there, now rather than then. Who put me here? by whose command and act were this time and place allotted to me. So, um, where have we seen a similar question earlier in this course? Do you remember the principle of sufficient reason? Why is the universe round? Okay, so here we go with Occam's razor. It's yeah. Sort of a similar argument. Yeah. Well, the principle of sufficient reason is there has to be a reason for everything. And remember Anaximander saying that the world is everywhere equal from the middle. There's no reason for it to be higher or lower or more to the left or more to the right. That's why it's suspended right in the middle of space. And um, why everything balances out in the end. So the pre-Socratics, not that Pascal knew them. Um, he probably didn't, but the pre-Socratics um, were making, using a similar kind of human thinking, the kind of human thinking that says everything has to have a reason, and if there's no reason for the earth to be stretched, let's say, for the world to be in one place rather than another place, then it's just going to be right in the middle. Um, if there's no reason for there to be corners, why should there be corners at some places and not, not others, then it's going to be round. So the pre-Socratics, um, first Anaximander and then Parmenides, um, were basically saying there can't be any reason before the existence of the universe for the universe to take on um, any kind of uneven shape because there would have to be a reason that made it uneven in that way, that shaped it in that way. But nothing existed before the universe, so there wouldn't be a reason for it to be shaped that way. So the shape would have to be uniform and even. And that is Parmenides and Anaximander's argument for the um, uniformity of the world. Yeah? Okay. I just want to say something about this. Like, I don't see the problem here. Yeah. 
All right, but here's a way I think, or Kara, do you want to? No, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. And it's like, if I was born in 1630, like, I would not be Carol Booker. You'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, it's, then, it, then it's like it doesn't matter who you are, because you might as well not exist, because you could, you just exist until you were born. He assumes your mind is, like, disconnected from the rest of the world. Okay, for, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, first Joy, then Greg. I mean, that's a very modern idea, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was going on the assumption that there's a soul. And so if there's a soul that is the essence of you, then you can be. Yeah, this is pretty good. Yeah, no, I mean, that means you have to have an underlying assumption, which you have to refer to. I mean, you have to, you have to believe that there is something that you are not very much so have your own, um, like, uh, Yeah, okay, yeah, Greg. Well, if he's looking for a reason why he's there as opposed to someone else, and based on the idea that there has to be a reason for everything, maybe it's just that there is no reason, and the fact that he's there, it's not that he being there is a coroner, it's just that he being there evens everything out and makes it round. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's what you're saying too. But here's, here's another way to think of this question. So let's say, which we haven't been saying, but let's say right now the time is infinite. That is, the time has been... Um, going on forever, and that an angel could come into the room and finish reciting pi backwards. And if you say, how could you do that? The angel would say, well, I've been reciting it for an infinite amount of time. Pi is infinitely long, but I've had an infinite amount of time to recite it in. And now here we are, um, 5141.3. Um, so let's say time is infinite, and that the angel then takes a breath, and then says, but now i got to recite it forward, 3.141592, and leaves the room chanting pi, and you realize that he's going to do it forever. Um, so that's fine. That would be an image of time as being sort of like the number line, um, in which instead of, well, we could just do it as the number line. The angel could, be, could come into the room and say, <coughs> Negative three, negative two, negative one, zero! And you'll say zero, and he'll say, yeah, I've been counting backwards from negative infinity, and I finally got to zero, right? <coughs> and then, um, or counting forwards, I'm sorry, from negative infinity, and finally got to zero. And now I've got to leave because I've got to keep counting. And then he leaves saying one, two, three, dot, dot, dot. And you can say... And he says, you know, I say a number every second. So you can say he's been reciting numbers for an infinite number of seconds, and he will now continue to recite numbers for an infinite number of seconds. And he comes into the room just when he gets to zero. So that's an image of eternity in both directions. Okay? So Pascal is saying now, you have an extent of time that goes from negative infinity seconds ago or hours ago or years ago to an infinite number of years from now. And in all that time, we get to live three score and ten, the Bible says. Seventy years. So there's a 70-year window. Or if you want to say... Um, with people you know. That is, let's say, really the human life is about 100 years is, is pretty much the limit of a human life, except lifespan, except in very rare circumstances. So the longest shared human experience on some definition of shared human experience is 200 years. That is, you're born when your great-grandmother is 100 years old, and she says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And you, you spit up on her shoulder. And then she dies when you're six months old. And then you get to live to be 100. And you get to see your great-granddaughter. 
um, who spits up on your shoulder and then you die. Um, so there is living human experience that's 200 years. Let's say that's about the limit of living human experience. You're going to object? Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. There you go. What? President Tyler, Tyler or Taylor? President I think it's Tyler. Tyler. He, was, he had kids really late in his life, like when he was like 80 or something yeah. like that. And then his son had, had a kid a when he was kid like 80. He was like 80 or something. So his, he was born in the 1770s, Tyler, and his grandkids are old men who are still alive today. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> So yes, it's cool. It's very cool. Um, all right, but so let's just say that that our shared experience is um, the experience you can share with another human being is about two hundred years. Um, that no one is going to have known someone who had a human experience more than two hundred years ago. Um, that's the absolute limit. So out of out of an infinite number of years. You and anyone else in that infinite number of years can only interact at most within a 200-year window. So what are the odds that we're in that 200-year window? Mathematically, what are the odds? Nothing. Zero. 100%. We're here. <laughs> Mathematically. Yeah. Take a time at random. What are the odds that you're alive? Out of eternity? Yeah. Oh. Zero. Zero. Well, it, what Pascal is freaking out about is that the odds of being alive, of, of it being a time when you're alive. Yeah, so can the anthropic principle really defeat infinity? The anthropic, principle? the anthropic principle is you shouldn't freak out about the fact that um, you're alive or that the universe seems perfectly built so that you can be alive because if it weren't, you wouldn't be. In other words, the fact that you're here um, means that you're not at a typical time. It's not a random time in the history of time. It's the only time where you could, be a, where you could ask the question. So it's not like you can ask the question for all eternity. You can only ask the question for the period that you're alive or in the universe in which you're alive. So the anthropic principle is a, is a um, half philosophical and half scientific explanation for um, what's sometimes called sample bias. That is, it could be that the universe is the way it is, because that's the only universe where minds could um, evolve to wonder why the universe is the way it is. And there could be hundreds and hundreds of trillions of other universes in which the physical laws were slightly different and minds could not evolve. And, um, well, essentially there's an argument that some religious scientists like to put forth, which is that the odds that, the, that, that physical laws could be such as they are, that life could develop, are something like 100 trillion to 1. Um, that's an argument that people have made, that, that um, chemistry and physics and the cosmological constant and all sorts of other things have to be tweaked to 9 or 10 significant digits. And if they were slightly different, um, life couldn't develop. So the odds against that are just so tremendous that you have to believe there was a designer that God tweaked the laws of the universe to make them work so that we could exist. So there are Derek Parfit, who's um, a lot of people think is the smartest living philosopher. I don't have an opinion. Do you think he is? I think he's pretty good. Yeah, he believes that. He thinks that's a legitimate argument, um, that the odds against a universe randomly being able to support life are so absurdly small that God must have done it. And that is an argument that a lot of people make. And it can be dizzying, like, oh my god, you mean really if water um, boiled at a hundred billionth of a degree different temperature, we wouldn't exist? Um, that could freak you out. Um, the, yeah. 
Uh, well, no, no, no. Now we're going to get into very into different infinities. Um, here we start getting into the freaky part of the course. So far, it's all been very straightforward, all very vanilla-like. But things start getting weird. Um, but Parfit is assuming that modern physics is right to say there isn't infinite time. So what you have is a, so what Parfit is saying is finite amount of time, really not very much time at all. Um, odds against um, the physical laws of the universe being such that minds could evolve, um, absolutely tremendous, nothing like infinite, but tremendously against this, trillions to one that this could happen. But it, yeah, so, so that's... I, I, I don't know what he says about that, and I assume he does respond. Um, I have a different bone to pick with him, which is that I think that once you talk about odds that are trillions to one, I think the odds that we get the odds wrong are a lot higher than the odds that we might be getting wrong. So it's like, oh my god, it's trillions to one. That would be a really good um, scientific reason not to, th to think that we didn't actually have the science right. If it were trillions to one against um, the numbers being exactly the way they are, um, if that's what the theory implies, the theory's probably wrong. Um, it may be subtly wrong, but it's more likely to be wrong than that we beat the trillions to one odds. Um, so that's my argument against Parfit. That's actually what Hume would have argued. Um, but that's a, that's a different issue. The weak, well, I guess we, the, the anthropic principle, there's something called the weak anthropic principle and the strong anthropic principle. The weak anthropic principle is pretty much everyone believes. The strong anthropic principle is the, is the harder one. The anthropic principle is what some of you are saying. It could be that there are trillions and trillions of other universes, and in none of those other universes is there life. And the reason that this universe contains life is that of all those trillions of universes in which there were trillions to one odds against the conditions being right for life, this is the one universe out of all those trillions, or one out of two or three maybe out of all those trillions, where life did develop. And it's like saying the odds against being, the odds against um, Reading Obama's second inaugural address the next time I um, instantiate a book from the Library of Babel are tremendously big. Um, or the odds, uh, the odds that a random person picked out, let's say the odds that if, I, that if I pick nine digits at random and get Obama's social security number by picking nine digits at random are what? A billion to one. Right? Nevertheless, that's not a proof that Obama doesn't have a social security number. Because in Kenya, they, no. Um, that's not a proof that he doesn't have a social security number. The odds are a billion to one, but there is someone with that social security number. Yeah? Yeah, so, but notice that we're, are you looking to see if you're half your size in the gum wrapper, Joy? What? Are you looking to see if you're half your size in the gum wrapper? <laughs> were you? No. All right. <laughs> I'm going to get back to that. Um, what, notice that what you're saying is the, is the distinction we were talking about before between um, interesting and uninteresting descriptions. So the point would be that we're saying, um, yeah, you could have, it's like all the books in the Library of Babel that are gibberish, and then there's one book that makes perfect sense. And you could say, well, you know, every single one of those books, the odds against all those gibberishy books were equal to the odds against this sense-making book. Yeah, so that's the, that's the anthropic principle. That is that, that the fact that we're here, in fact, cancels itself out. It cancels itself out because if we weren't here, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know it. We can't count all the, well, there's, there's a great Yiddish joke. Um, it's actually a joke that Cormac McCarthy repeats in the, in the road um, in a sort of southern accent. Um, but the Yiddish version of the joke is two altercockers are talking, and one says, 
You'll know. No, now I'm doing my son's fencing coach. No, they're talking philosophy. They're on a stoop. It's, 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 a, it's a hot day. They have nothing better to do. And they're talking philosophy. And one says, you know, life is hard. Happier is a man who has already died, <laughs> which is a sentiment. Um, and the other one says, you know, you're right, but happier still is the one who has never been born. <laughs> and the first one says, I know, but who has such luck? <laughs> Not one in 10,000. So basically, the weekanthropic principle is how many people, were, what, what are the odds that, that <laughs> how many people have never been born? That's the question. How many people have never been born? Everyone. <laughs> or no one. Um, but you could say, yeah, you know, hundreds of trillions of quadrillions of people have never been born. Um, <laughs> so, so that's the joke. I think you can actually find this on old Jews telling jokes. I think you can find that joke. Uh, it's also a website. You have the book. Um, yeah, it's in the Library of Babel. <laughs> we all have it, really, as long as we have access to the Library of Babel website. No, old Jews telling jokes is great. I think of when the doctor said it's a big universe. Everything happens somewhere. Yeah. Well, but that's not so clear if there's more than one order of infinity. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because even if you wait an infinite amount of time, you won't get to transfinite times. Or will you? All right, we'll talk about that, but not now. But let's go back to Pascal. So Pascal's point is, here you are out of the dizzying abyss of time. I'm right here. And you can say, yeah. Um, the odds against being here are zero, um, or are, are one. The odds that you're here are zero. But as you say, Greg, actually they're infinitesimal. And you know what? All those trillions and Googles and Googleplexes of years before you were born, you weren't there. And all those years that are going to go flying away after you die, you won't be there. So, you know, you think, God, I can't believe I exist. The odds against this are like, I mean, it's, there's zero chance that I exist. What the universe is basically saying to you is, yup. So enjoy it while you can because you're like a guest that tarrieth a day. And it's a really short day that you're tarrying. So that's what's freaking Pascal out, that somehow there's this flicker of his existence in the vastnesses of time, the infinite vastnesses of time, what's freaking everyone out. And this is what he has to work with. I mean, this course is called Thinking About Infinity. Look what he says, for example, um, when he's talking. This is in section 113, um, page 29 of The Penguin. Uh, one of the two places he talks about the thinking read. It is not in space that I must seek my human dignity, but in the ordering of my thought. So space is what surrounds us. Thought is what's inside us. It is not in space that I must seek my human dignity, but in the ordering of my thought. It will do me no good to own land. Through space, the universe grasps me, grasps me, and swallows me up like a speck. Through thought, I grasp it. So we're nothing as space. We're thinking reads as space. But through thought, we grasp space. Um, we can think about that which swallows us up. This is going to be very important to Kant also, especially when he talks about the experience of the sublime. Um, Kant is really interested in the aesthetic experience of something like the Grand Canyon or Mont Blanc, um, some, excuse me, some sublimity in nature, where we, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, the first time anyone sees it, they're just blown away by it. 
you see this thing, and it's not beautiful. This is one of the things that Kant insists on, that we might just say, oh, man, that's so beautiful, but that's not actually what we mean by beauty. Um, if you think about what you mean by beauty, um, you don't mean something scary. The beautiful is usually not scary. But you see, the, you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, and you're blown away by it, and you have what is an aesthetic experience, but not an experience of beauty, an experience of something that seems to be greater than beauty to exceed beauty. Kant and many other people named that experience the experience of the sublime, not the experience of the beautiful. Um, Burke, from whom Kant gets the terminology, Edmund Burke, the English philosopher, um, basically says the experience of beauty is the experience of a pleasure. That is, you see something beautiful and it gives you pleasure. The experience of the sublime is an experience of terror avoided, terror escaped. You look into the Grand Canyon and the first thing you think about is how you could die, how you could be swallowed up in that space, how you could be nothing in that space. And then you realize, but you're not dying. You're not falling into it. You are potentially being annihilated by it, but then you're not being annihilated. So Burke calls that experience not pleasure, but delight. And for Burke, delight means the experience, the fantastic and wonderful experience of escape. So the idea is that if you think of yourself as generally going along in a neutral affective state, and then you see something beautiful, ooh, that's nice, and things are better for a little while. Oh, it's so beautiful, a flower. It's lovely. But if you experience the sublime, it's, oh my god, but I'm actually OK. And so the absolute value of the sublime, it's a negative experience of terror. But then you return to where you were because you're OK. You have the experience of escape. And that is a huge experience that you've just had, and one that ends with you OK. And for him, that's the experience of delight. It's like bungee jumping. So it's like beauty is you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, or you go to the edge of something beautiful, and you stand on a chair to see things a little bit better, and oh, it's even nicer. And the sublime is you bungee jump off it, and it's utterly terrifying, but then you're OK. And that is what Burke calls delight. For Kant, the sublime is the experience of the human mind mastering its own nothingness. That is that you look at the universe and all you are, he gets this ultimately from Pascal, all you are is, is a reed, a speck in the universe, nothing in the immensity of the universe. Melville may be thinking of this when he thinks of Pip, if you know Moby Dick, who's lost at sea and hanging on to a lifeboat in the emptiness of the ocean. Pip is just a pip, a speck in the Pacific. And it completely changes him. It utterly destroys him psychologically. That's what we are in the universe. Here rather than there, now rather than then, but all of it swallowed up so that we're nothing. And yet we can think that. Yet our thoughts can grasp that fact. And that itself is where human dignity comes from, human power. It comes from the power of thought rather than some kind of power within the universe. It's power to think about the universe. Yeah? Why don't, why don't the existence of uh, the sublime feelings or this experience of nothingness immediately contradict nothingness? Well, according to Pascal and to Kant, they do. But what Macbeth is about, so let's finally finish with Macbeth. What Macbeth is about, since we have a minute, I know. No, we really do have a minute. Um, that clock is fast. I know it looks like it's imperceptible movements, but they're nevertheless fast imperceptible movements. Your phone is fast, too. No, really. What Macbeth wants is what Pascal says he can't have. Pascal says, what good would it do me to live 10 more years? It's still nothing. The proportion is still a finite over an infinite amount of time. 
Living 10 more years, big deal. Macbeth says to be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus. What Macbeth wants to do is own time, at least own a stretch of time. Know that he can be king for 10 years without losing it. But all he gets is the present moment. And Macbeth was king for 10 years. It's not as though Macbeth got to be king, but he was immediately defeated because what a schmuck. He was king for a long time. But it never mattered because he could never own duration. He got the idea of what it meant to be a human being in time wrong. Humans do not possess duration. That's what Augustine has said. That's what Pascal is saying. That's what Macbeth finds out when he says, it's an hour, that's how long you live, to strut and fret your hour upon the stage. Time comes in syllables and not in semesters. How's that? Okay, see you Wednesday. Who, who are the content? Who else does this apply to? Burke, Edmund Burke. <laughs>